and welcome to Cream of Caroline, the hottest, bubbliest casserole lifestyle podcast on the planet. I'm your host, Caroline Hatchett. Welcome back for episode two, y'all. I hope you're hungry because tonight we're going to get domesticated. You men, women, and children out there will learn how to make a new casserole for your repertoire. And we're talking domesticated animals, specifically heritage breed farm animals with photographer Elisa Ilyazarov. On the booze front, you'll learn how to get comfy with wine, courtesy of Sam and wine educator Kilolo Strobert. And of course, there will be casserole. Tenderloin noodle treat to be exact, it's gonna be creamy. What's in the oven? A quick breakdown of dinner tonight. If you are following along in the Better Homes and Gardens 1961 casserole cookbook, you can turn to page 15 now, or you can tune into Instagram at Cream of Caroline for the tenderloin noodle treat recipe. I uh, followed the ingredient list pretty much verbatim, but I had to veer slash swerve off uh, of their technique. Starts out pretty straightforward. We're boiling egg noodles, draining them, making a creamy bechamel sauce to which you add crumbled blue cheese, bell pepper, and roasted red pepper. Combining that with the noodles, putting it in a prepared casserole dish, easy. Then they would have you take half inch pork chops, season them, and sear them for seven minutes on each side. Lord have mercy. Then you would arrange the pork chops in the noodles in a row, kind of halfway covered, and bake them for 30 minutes more. That is a recipe for dry, overcooked pork. Don't do it. Your pork chops really only take in a hot cast iron skillet about two minutes, maybe three if you are a warrior. Um, so what you want to do instead is pop that casserole in the oven, let the noodles and the sauce integrate, get hot, and about 10-15 minutes out you want to sear those seasoned pork chops on both sides two minutes. You can do it. Pull the casserole out of the oven, arrange those beautiful pork chops in the noodles. It'll be a showstopper. You want to serve them together. Heat them up for 10 minutes just to make sure they're warm through. Pull it out of the oven and serve. Serve not hockey pucks to your dinner guests, people. That's what's in the oven tonight. Casseroles in the news. Seniors in Cambridge, Wisconsin can enjoy free meals at the Amundsen Community Center on Tuesday and Friday of this week. Tuesday's menu includes broccoli, cauliflower, pineapple, blueberry crisp, and taco pasta casserole. To make a reservation, call 608-838-7117. Again, that's 608-838-7117. In an interview with Money Magazine, single father and actor Curtis Cook recounts living off $20 a week before he got his big break. He now plays Otis Duda Perry on HBO's The Chi, but before he made primetime, Cook says he sustained himself on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and tuna casserole, aka Kraft mac and cheese with a can of tuna dumped in. Casserole Night, put on by Marilee Bell, secretary of the Marimbula Big Game and Lakes Angling Club in Marimbula, Australia, raised $2,100 for the Westpac Rescue Helicopter Service. That cream will go a long way in keeping their community safe. Way to go, Marilee. 
And finally, in Orland, Maine, the Orland United Methodist Church will hold a baked bean and casserole supper on July 6th. Tickets are a steal, eight bucks for adults, four for kids, and free for the under five crowd. For more information, call Cindy Kimball at 207-902-2250 or Lynn Hasseltine at 207-702-1255. That's your casseroles in the news. Our guest today is photographer Aliza Ilyazarov. Aliza has worked as a park ranger and a public school teacher. And as a photographer, she has dumpster dived for her Waste Not Still Life series. And she most recently shot hundreds of dog portraits as the in-house photographer at BarkBox. Most of her work, though, focuses on food and farming, which brings her to the cream today. Welcome, Aliza. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I am so I'm so excited to have you as a guest tonight. Are you are you ready to eat some casserole? So ready, love a casserole. Well, <laughs> since uh, we're talking about heritage breed animals, I decided to make a casserole that would showcase heritage breed pork, uh, which means that you are going to be enjoying tenderloin noodle treat mm. at the end of the mm. show. Can't wait. <laughs> now I know your mom was a great cook. She even owned a restaurant, yes. but did. Did you grow up eating casseroles? Um, there are not so many casseroles in the, as far as I know, in like Jewish cooking. But my mom did make a noodle a noodle kugel, and um, in preparation for this interview, I actually for the first time asked her what was in her noodle kugel, and um, I had no idea that there's Velveeta. <laughs> Oh my gosh, because I'm like, I'm not in love with kugel because it's not savory enough for me, but Velveeta. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just very, so made it so 70s, 80s, 70s, 80s. I was really interested that she added Velveeta to her noodle kugel. But there's like Fabulous. Velveeta and cottage cheese and sour cream and like, I think lots of egg and raisins and cinnamon and sugar was like sprinkled on top, which is like your typical egg noodle kugel. Um, and apparently I, we ate a lot of it when I was a kid growing up and I asked her, I'm half Sephardic. So I was like, is there a Sephardic, Sephardic kugels? (laughs) <laughs> like, is there anything that would be considered Sephardic or Middle Eastern in, in like, in, like, the casserole genre? But she couldn't think of anything. I mean, it's stu- stuffed, uh, stuffed cabbage isn't, isn't casserole Is that casserole No, not really. I mean, that's, it's, I, I don't know. I was actually, I was talking with someone about it recently, and I, it's, it may even be coming back into vogue. Mm-hmm. So it's like stuffed, it's baked, it has sauce on top. I think it's pretty close. Oh, yeah. So a lot of like stuffed cabbage was like a, a Sephardic stuffed cabbage dish was a very, is a very thing and, that I ate. And what is, what makes Sephardic, Sephardic, I'm having a hard time with that word too today, uh, stuffed cabbage versus what I know is like more Polish traditional, I mean, there's no pork, obviously. No pork. It was definitely like, it was probably not super different, but it was definitely, it was a very, the, the dish my my mom made was a dish that my grandmother made, and it was just a recipe passed down by word of mouth, and um, it was like an ordeal. I just know that it was a long process to make, and it was a mixture of beef and 
uh, beef and rice and probably more of a Middle Eastern spices, I would guess, than Polish. I don't know what. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what she would use, which how she would spice it actually. And it, there was a there was like a tomatoey kind of sauce around it, um, and it was delicious though. It was delicious. Yeah, I'm always so, I did not grow up with that, and I'm always so intimidated by the amount of work that when I read a recipe, I'm like, yeah, I'm never, I'm never literally gonna make this yeah. ever. Maybe, maybe for the podcast, I'll have to learn how to make it. Yeah. I didn't know it was going back and that it's like becoming a an in an in dish. <laughs> yeah. So I had a chef who said he was making it out on the West Coast for a dinner and then I've had it at Monteverde, uh, Sarah Grunenberg Gruneberg, who is um, of like Texas German descent and she puts like a little Italian twist on it and it's pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. Literally talking about it today. Oh, interesting. Kismet. Uh, so but I wanna hear all about your big project. You are spending the summer shooting your upcoming book, On the Modern Mm -hmm. Farm, Portraits of Heritage Breeds. Tell us all about it. For the past eight years, I've been photographing uh, heritage breed animals, the sustainable farming movement with a focus on heritage breeds. And um, I kind of let it started as as a personal project that turned into shooting the cover stories for Modern Farmer magazine and it led to a book deal and um, the book is going to be just as the title says portraits and stories of heritage breed farm animals. So tell me what that means uh, in a few parts so one what is a heritage breed animal and then why does that matter why should we care about heritage breed animals? But a heritage breed is really a breed of animal of livestock that can survive on their own. It's the opposite of an industrialized farm animal. These animals can still breed without assistance, so they can mate naturally. They can Mm. raise, they're able to raise their young, and they are able to adapt and live outdoors and in nature. One of the most important reasons to to raise these animals is for biodiversity. When factory farming came along, all of these animal, all of these other animals that didn't kind of subscribe to these, what was what was needed and desired and ideal for factory farms, kind of fell fell away. Which is why these some of, a lot of these breeds became endangered. Right, I know, like Slow Foods, for example, promotes heritage breeds. There are a few other organizations that do it specifically. Right. Um, and then your book is going to work to yeah. shine some light yeah. on them as well. So, But you're photographing these animals. Yeah. Um, and your aesthetic, I know, so Aliza shot the cover of Modern Farmer, rabbits, beautiful llamas, chickens, um, all kinds of animals. Mm-hmm. And it had a very like specific aesthetic, so either a white background or a black background, um, really studio photography, mm-hmm. but with animals. And how how does that work on a farm? What is what is like the process of shooting mm-hmm. these not quite wild, but these animals? It's it's pretty crazy. I every shoot is so different, and. I never know really what I'm going to get because I can't 
like scout scout beforehand. But what I do is I try to talk to the farmers and I tell them that I need ideally I need a barn or a garage or some kind of in in um like place that's shaded so I can control the lighting. And then I go into these spaces and I set up a backdrop and um, studio lighting. And then kind of depending on the animal, we kind of like either, we just like build this on location studio. So, but are there, are there farmers like helping control the animals yeah. and moving them? Are you, have you become an animal whisperer? <laughs> <laughs> well, some may say. Um, the farmers kind of act as like the animal wrangler, yeah, okay. for sure. And um, treats go a long way. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't work. Well, I mean, treats don't work on chickens, though, do they? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah. what's a chicken treat? I mean, anything that you throw on the ground is a chicken <laughs> treat. <laughs> I know, they eat anything, right? Um, yeah, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes the farmers are doubtful that it's going to work and sometimes they think one animal is going to be great and that's the animal that sucks and like and the animal that they didn't think would do well is my best is like the star is Beyonce yeah like 100 percent yeah so what what is give me a shoot that was particularly difficult tell me about an animal that was just a mega pain in the ass well, I'll tell you, an animal that was a pain in the ass to shoot were turkeys. Um, I got this, I, I shot turkeys on assignment for for Modern Farmer first, and uh, what we needed for the cover, and what you want from a tom turkey is for them to strut, to be like fully, um, fully uh, displaying their feathers and puffed up. But did they have to be attracted to you for that to happen? <laughs> Well, um, this shoot happened to be on a summer day in Connecticut. It was humid as all hell, and it was hot, and it was probably in the mid-90s. And this farmer, who is like known as like the turkey guy in the turkey world because he raises all of these heritage breed turkeys, was just confident that every turkey would just pop up for me and none of the turkeys. It was hour after hour. We were, um, we were uh, playing turkey mating calls on our phones. We were- uh, L- Listeners, Aliza is beautiful. <laughs> we she were. just doesn't do it for turkeys, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, so definitely not. I did not do <laughs> these turkeys. We threw in a female to try to get them like excited. Bait. Okay. We threw in another male to get them to display for aggression. Like we were just doing everything we could to get them to puff up and and they they weren't puffing up. Also, it was so hard scheduling the shoot because um the 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 farmers kept telling me that it was mating season and that the turkeys were in rough shape because it was mating season. <laughs> and I was like, what does that mean? And tur- like these, they kept telling me that I couldn't come photograph the turkeys because they were in rough shape. So they looked like Rocky mating. or something after a fight? I don't... So I, like, I couldn't, I didn't know what it meant. And they kept telling me that turkey sex is really rough. <laughs> So I, but you didn't witness the act. I didn't, but I 
did Google turkey sex <laughs> <laughs> and watched some turkey porn. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And you were glad, and you were also glad at that I point that like, turkeys weren't attracted to you. <laughs> oh. And listeners also, so as Eliza was getting into photography, we won't spend too much time on this, but um, she one of her first photo projects was on a porn set. So. Yes. So she yes. does have she does have some experience yes. with mating and you know and shooting in general. Now, have you ever just comes full circle? <laughs> yeah. Have you ever turkey sex is crazy, by the way. Have you? I mean, would you like to describe it? I kind of want. Okay, to. tell yeah. tell me <laughs> tell me about it. So, first of all, it's magical, and the fact that ninety nine percent of pretty much all commercially bred turkeys aren't able to mate. Because they can't. They can't because so they're like too the, heavy. So like riding. a butterball turkey that you get Mm-mm. at Thanksgiving probably led a pretty sad life, but he's he or she, I don't know it, you know, has never been able to mate. No, because it's they were artificially inseminated. Okay. Yeah. And they're artificially inseminated because these commercial industrial agricultural turkeys have been bred to be so big, you know, to have such big, heavy, large breasts and so be so large that they would crush the female. So what happens with turkey sex is that, um, is that it's so magical. I'm like just obsessed with turkey mating. And um, so, so turkeys, the, the, the tom, the male turkey, the tom, when he sees a lady that he likes, he will, first of all, his waddle, that like weird mm-hmm. skinny flesh that goes down a turkey, will turn from white to blue to red. Like it changes to bright, bright red. And so his blood vessels are, mm-hmm. it shows that he's fully ready to rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then on top of the beak, there's a little snood, it's called. And it's this little protuberance of skin. And that grows and starts growing and growing and growing and elongate and also changes color and starts hanging. I think I remember seeing yeah. this snood yeah. in photographs, but right. I did not know. So that is like a face boner, basically. Okay, yeah. I did not know so that the snood equals face, face boner. boner. Yeah, okay. basically. And then their chest puffs up, they fan their tail feathers, and they start drumming their... Um, their their wings on the ground so it's like a dance like this elaborate dance with like color and um, plumage and sound and music and then they they do this dance and then if the female is into them and accepts the the male will then mount onto her back and give her kind of like a massage and Fort kind play. of yeah yeah okay. Like cute Marvin Gaye, light the candles. <laughs> and this guy, will, to Mr. Tom, will just start kind of massaging her back. And then the actual act, the cloacal kiss, where the two vents touch mm-hmm. and the, um, the fertilized, the seed is then transferred to the female, is only like a second. So, so that's called the, the what kiss? Okay, that's cloaca is actually one of my favorite words, Um, and our readers can also, you know, Google that and Google image (laughs) that. Um, But I didn't realize that it was involved in mating rituals as well. Yeah, yeah, it's involved in a lot of things—a little membrane, special, special little membrane. (laughs) Special man. 
So did the turkeys ever puff for you? Did that ever, did that happen in the shoot? The whole day, like, there was eight hours of shooting, and one, one tom finally puffed at the end, but it was just one did it for Sounds like a man, basically. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> and so, and, and who, who has been the Beyonce of your shoot? Who has just come and turned it on and, and stolen your heart? There are, there are many, but I, I will say that when I photographed um, Anna the bison, there was, um, I mean, it's the, the largest animal I've ever Like how large? Like, um, like a, a full, like 2,000 pounds maybe. Okay, yeah. Like a ton. It's a big girl. So about a ton. So, so bison are never as like the, these North American mammals of the Great Plains are never inside a barn. They will stand in the middle of a, and face a snowstorm head on with no, you know, without blinking an eye. Right. Um, so to get this bison under a roof for the first time in her life, she's 10 years old, was, a, I don't know, like kind of a challenge and just we were very, un- the ranchers were very unsure if it were possible. But um, it was a rainy day, and we uh, built the studio in the barn, and we built a kind of a, this like pathway of gates for to lead Anna into the shooting area, onto mm-hmm. into the studio, onto set, and um, miraculously, she just stood there, it was just <laughs> like completely chill, and just lipped at me with this amazing bison What does it feel like to to stare into bison eyes? It's intense. They breathe. Their breath is very, very loud. They have huge tracheas, and so their breath is really loud. It's just, they're fantastic. So Anna the bison. Mm -hmm. Now, are you revisiting some of those animals for the book, or are there, what other kind of stories are you telling? Um... In the book, um, I'm looking. So a lot of the stories I'm telling, I'm looking for, for interesting breeds with interesting histories and animals with specifically interesting individual stories. So tell me about one breed with a with a particularly interesting history. Okay. Uh, how about the San Clemente Island goat? I don't know a damn thing <laughs> about San Clemente Island goat, so please okay. do tell. So the San Clemente Island goat is the rarest breed of goat, heritage breed goat in America. How many, do you know how many there are? I think there are about 700. Okay. Yeah. Um, they are from an island, San Clemente Island, which is off the coast of San Diego. So it's the southernmost channel island. Okay. It's about 75 miles off the coast of San Diego, something like that. And um, no one knows how, like, no one's really sure how they got there. It's kind of like a mystery. Initially, it was thought that they were brought over by the Spanish, but they did DNA tests, and it turns out they share no DNA with them. No one really knows how they got there and their their like DNA supposedly is kind of like unique and doesn't connect them with other breeds. But they were there on San Clemente Island 
for hundreds of years just feral. Um, they're light and they, they're they're small breed and they're um, kind of a little deer like. Like mm -hmm. they're 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 lightweight. They're good mothers, and they didn't have any natural predators, so their population grew. Now this island, um, San Clemente Island, is owned by the military. And at some point in the 70s, they decided that this breed, which had now grown to a population of 11,000, oh, wow. um, was decimating the native plant and animal population, and they were going to get rid of them and exterminate them by shooting them from helicopters. <laughs> like Sarah Palin style, but for yeah. like goats on an island. Okay. Yeah. So they started eradic eradicating the animal. And then when the, the breed was down to about 4,000, an animal rights organization stepped in and, asked, and litigated for the live removal of the remaining goats. So they got the rest of those goats off the island and they just went to like some random farms and only a few of them made them to like some conservation breeders. Okay. So their numbers, even though 4,000 made it to... to some interbred with other goats yeah, they and they've lost the way. DNA, right? Okay. Yeah, so now they got down to like, uh, like 700 is their population. So um, yeah, but they just have like this weird history. So where did you, have you found one to shoot yet? Yes. I just, I just photographed a beautiful buck named Ransom. In, I thought it was going to be Randy. I would have liked that better. <laughs> it was Ransom. Yeah. Ransom. And he um, is at a farm up in, a Macron farm up in Boston Spa near Saratoga Springs, New York. And and he's there, and she's a conservation breeder, and she has a small herd of San Clemente goats, and I photographed him, and I photographed just some babies and some females, and she, she also, like, the story kind of continues, because I got to this farm, and it turns out that they had had, two years ago, they had had a horrible barn fire, and the farmer ended up, um, like animals were trapped inside and the farmer, this badass farmer, this woman named Jules, drove the tractor in like a last minute attempt with seconds to spare to save the animals. She drove the tractor like directly into the fire, into the side of the barn. Jesus, okay. Mm -hmm. And they all came running out? Mm -hmm. And Ransom was saved? Mm -hmm. Third degree burns and then he was like, he was okay. nurse back to health but he's just like this phoenix that like rose out of the flames and is now the sire of the herd i feel like i want to see him in a helicopter <laughs> with like top gun glasses flying over san clemente island yeah. <laughs> exacting his revenge yes um or just maybe like frolicking on the beach there or something like that that might be drinking a corona yeah, yeah. maybe that's a better life yeah. no violence for <laughs> ransom <laughs> so i mean what's it like to spend a day with goats i they don't have such a great rap yeah um it can be a little intense i have to say like um the, like these goats that have huge horns are like a well there's nothing maybe photographing a buck with horns can be quite 
dangerous. Well, they say that in the farm world, they say that there's nothing more dangerous than a bottle-bred, a bottle-fed male sheep or goat. Sounds like that applies, like, universally across animals and humans and everything else. Right, okay. But, like, the the bottle-fed babies are, um, think that they're, like, think their human is them. So when they mature, they'll challenge the human. And Ah. so there have been... Like documented deaths where um, a farmer, where a buck has challenged a, a bottle bed, bread baby, but a bottle baby has like grown up and then challenged the farmer and like knocked heads and then. Right, and they have much stronger cranial structure, yeah. I yeah. imagine, than so humans. So I am like on set, like leaning down in front of these bucks, like exactly where. Like, just in the line of fire. So I'm always a little nervous about photographing horned bucks, but I love, I love the big horns on these. Do you? Gorgeous. Oh, yeah, I love a good horn. You could wear a helmet or something, though, (laughs) maybe. Might impede your vision (laughs) or your, like... helmet (laughs) (laughs) on set? That's funny. Maybe I should, but baby goats are, like, the best of everything and goats in general are probably the most dog-like of all farm animals and they eat basically everything so they're they're browsers yeah they prefer not to eat grass they prefer oh really Mm, yeah so they're not grazers like so sheep are grazers they're grass eaters and Mm -hmm. cows and goats are browsers so they uh prefer to eat up things that are up higher so they prefer to eat um like bushes and twigs okay, I didn't and know vines. Mm-hmm. I know, yeah, I remember, yeah. yeah, they they used them to clear all kinds of, like, kudzu yeah. in Georgia, where I'm from, and to clear all kinds of brush on the side of highways. Oh, and yeah, people have companies where they rent goats to to clear land. Yeah, they do, a, it's like a great environmentally safe way to clear clear land. So you've shot goats. What what other chapters have you completed for the book? I know you're still struggling to write right now, but mm-hmm. as far as shooting, and then what what other animals are you working on scheduling and mm-hmm. fitting in? Oh, that's our that's our timer, Lisa. I'm gonna I'm gonna pause for just a second. So the casserole, guys, is in the oven. It is bubbling, but we remember we want to put the pork chops on in the last like ten minutes. Let me attend to the timer, and then I'll be back to you, Eliza. <laughs> Okay, we're back. Uh, The casserole is cooling down. It looks fabulous. And I just have a few more questions for you, Aliza. Tell me uh, what animals or chapters are you working on next? What's your next shoot? My next shoot is Princess Peppermint, the American guinea hog. (laughs) Are you... She's a pig. She's a a guinea hog. Yeah, she's an American guinea hog. She's a, a heritage breed a pig she lives in bennington vermont and her name is princess peppermint and she is a character and she lives on a wing and a prayer farm um and which is mostly a fiber farm but she has she rescued this this lovely guinea hog who turns all the soil in her garden and is more of a pet than anything else um and uh she's just very special she comes up to the door of the farmer's house wanting to come in the house but then is afraid to walk down the stairs 
So then she's stuck up on the patio. And, and she's a big girl, I assume. She's a big girl. And so the farmer gets her boozed up to get her back down the stairs. Uh-huh. Uh, she will not be drunk for your shoot, though, will I mean, she? who knows? Maybe that'll be better. Just, like, loosen her up and, a bit, oh right? Oh, my gosh. And I feel like with a name like that, she has to have outfits. But she's, I know she's like, a, she's like a real animal. She's not a person. She's not like a city dog. But I really want her to have like a, a tutu. Yeah, she should have one. And a, and a crown. She should have something special to wear. <laughs> maybe, maybe you can just Photoshop that in. Keep it, keep it natural, but like do something special just for her. Totally. To make her, to make her feel beautiful. Uh, and so I know you still have a lot of work to do, a lot of writing and research, um, but when can listeners expect to see your book in bookstores and on the almighty shelves of Amazon? When's that going to happen? Um, holiday 2020. Holiday yeah, 2020. So okay. about November, I think fall of, fall of 2020, it should be on the set. And when, are you, when do you um, think you're going to wrap shooting? Will it be sometime at the end of this year or like early next? No, no, I'll wrap shooting... Um, by uh, early fall, and then my transcript is due, the manuscript is due um, in November 1st. Well, I think that is about it. Listeners, you can follow Aliza uh, on Instagram at phonography. Is that the right one? Yeah, F A U. Is that the handle? N O G R A P H Y. Phonography. Yes. Phonography. <laughs> to see her progress on the book and all of the animals that she is shooting. Uh, thank you so much for joining us tonight, Aliza. And thank you to all of our listeners for keeping it creamy. Thanks, Caroline. Thanks, <laughs> Aliza. All right, guests, we have now Kilolo Strobert in the house. Hello, Kilolo. Hi, Kilolo. So Kilolo um, was my first ever colleague in a cubicle uh, in New York City uh, at Zagat. Um, We were... Is it it Zagat or Zagat? It's Zagat. You know it's Zagat. (laughs) I just want to say that. And she is a hardcore Brooklyn native, so she taught me how to be a New Yorker. Facts. She is also a sommelier and wine educator, and uh, she recently launched Get Comfy with Wine, a new class series. Uh, so she's going to tell us about that today, and she's also going to pour some juice for our tenderloin noodle treat bake situation. Yeah, yeah, that's it's a real situation. <laughs> <actually>. <laughs> okay, so first of all, tell us about Get Comfy. So Get Comfy With Wine is, you know, something that I decided to start because I really wanted to help people be confident in their bottle purchases. There's so much that people don't understand about their own palates. They don't understand about how they decipher what something tastes like. You know, uh, we were talking about this earlier. People don't know what a gooseberry is. Some people don't know what a strawberry tastes like. Some people don't know what the difference between a granny green apple and a Macintosh apple is. And there are distinct differences. Granny green is like sour and beautiful. And the red delicious is ripe and sweet. And what are you feeling in that moment on that day? Right. And just like your mood changes, your wine buying purchase changes with that. 
just like your dinner decisions change your wine pairings change and i want people to get comfortable with being assertive in what they know they want kilo is a very assertive lady i i can be very assertive yes <laughs> yes and it's it's important for me for people to feel confident about what they're looking for so i would i want people to let me help them get comfortable well and i also just think that get comfy with wine um dovetails beautifully with casseroles right obviously there is like literally nothing more comfortable but you know when I think about casseroles I love you mom I think of like a 1.5 of yellowtail on the table Mm -hmm. um but if your casserole game is incredible your wine your wine game should also you know it should match it and and on top of that we can match it at every single level if yellowtail is your thing yellowtail has this well, episode is not sponsored by Yellowtail. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. But if, let's say a product, let's say a bottle under $15 mm-hmm. that's in a magnum size, meaning that there are two bottles in that specific bottling, we don't. We can say this is the one you should get. There's no judgment. It's a judgment-free zone. Kilola is a judgment-free zone. Yes, I am. Caroline. <laughs> Caroline is not so much. <laughs> But, you know, that's why we balance each other out. It, I did the math. I won't let people know, but it's a well over a decade. Okay. The balance, a few more gray hairs. The, uh, for me, <laughs> definitely so. Um, but, yeah, so it's uh, the judgment should not be on the table with wine. You know, we all, my, I was telling Caroline earlier, my gateway wine was Fat Bastard. That's not a judgment. That's real. Yeah. The fat bastard from Languedoc. You said Syrah. Syrah. Your, Syrah your, your, your aha moment was with Syrah. My aha moment, which was is filled with pepper and fruit, and I think that you know I was uh, I was in the mood for that day for that, and it just I went from vodka and beer to wine, and that was a and fat bastard was a gateway. And fat bastard, not not <laughs> Mike Myers, fat bastard, <laughs> but the hippo. Whose nickname on the wine label, that was his nickname. And that was what they named it after. And, and it that, sparked a career in wine. That's it. The gateway. The gateway drug. The gateway wine. If Fat Bastard would like to sponsor Cream of <laughs> Caroline, they can do that too. <laughs> uh, or get, they can sponsor Get Comfy with Wine probably. It's more appropriate. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, it's... so. We have some really beautiful wines on the table right now. I just to, picked one up. To so. pair with the bake so again we have the blue cheese we have bell pepper which is a little tricky with wine sometimes um roasted red pepper pork and like a you know a milky creamy bechamel scenario um we are not pouring basic wine here i don't think no you know for this i really wanted to make sure that we were sticking to the under 20 um price point which i think is comfortable for most not all but most um, and then we have one that's at fifteen nine. The white is at fifteen ninety nine. The red is at about nineteen ninety nine, twenty one ninety nine. So um, just wanted to make sure that you know I thought that things were approachable for people, and I think they worked out fairly well. Beautifully. Yeah, it was just you know that makes me really happy. Um, but at all price points, you know we have things in this world that can work. So what's the juice, girl? Okay, so. Did a red and a white, because let's face it, that's 
those are the main choices. So the f- white is a Cote de Rhone. Okay. Cote de Rhone just means we're in the Rhone. Mm-hmm. Be, be one with that, which is a big area, but just know that it can come from anywhere. And um, this is a blend of your typical Rhone varieties. And I wanted it because it has a lot of presence in terms of the fruit. Mm-hmm. And you have in this noodle treat here, some spice and the blue cheese. And blue cheese is like a very big deal. And so with the white, no matter what, I wanted there to be some weight and I wanted to, there to be some fruitiness. Not necessarily sweetness, even though that's like a traditional pairing with blue cheese. I wanted the fruit presence itself to represent a riper style of fruit. And then the Rhone, you find that a lot. Because it's warm. It's warm. And the grapes themselves have characteristics that even when you don't have a lot of um, sugar left in the blend to represent like a sweeter taste, the grapes themselves are going to exhibit as ripe. So you're going to think it's a little bit sweet, even okay. though it's not. Okay. Yeah, this is, this is... I hope that didn't sound too complicated. I'm trying to, you know, dial it back a little. <laughs> Just a little. Just a, just a little. But, you know, that I think that's one of the main um, difficulties with wine deciphering between ripeness and sweetness. So I want everyone to understand that they're different. So this is a very ripe style. Take a swig. Take a swig. Take a swig. It's, um, I think it totally works. Yeah. Yeah. And this blend is Claret and Bourbon. Okay. So two grapes. Those are the two grapes. Two grapes that most people don't know. Yeah, you would never walk into a store and be like, "Can may I have claret, please?" Yeah, no, it's like not. Oh, she rolled the R's. I heard that. <laughs> I didn't roll my R's. I never know whether I'm supposed to or not. No, you no rolling them totally works. It made it seem very zhuzhed up, which it should. Even though it's fifteen ninety nine, we want we make it zhuzhy all day. All all day. So yeah, it's ripen style. Totally goes with the blue cheese, but then also at the same time, that pepper. A lot of times when I think of spicy and fruit together, mm-hmm. I think of, funny enough, like Southern, South, Southern American, Mexican. Oh, yeah. Because they do a lot of fruits that are ripe and then they put a lot of spice together. So whenever I see that, I don't hesitate to blend something like that. Okay. So for me, that was why I went with that. The white. The white. And I think we decided the red is, is our popping favorite, maybe. Yes. So. Yes. For all, all parties. Yeah, This the Pinot Meunier is great. So this is the great Pinot Meunier. We're in Germany. We're in the southernmost part of Germany, touching France, close to Alsace. Um, look at a map. <laughs> <laughs> I know that may not seem like a big deal, but it is. Um, One of the reasons why I picked this is because seeing Pinot Meunier in Germany, what? And I don't think I've ever had Pinot Meunier just as a single varietal. It's usually part of a blend, right? Yeah, it's normally part of a blend. And what's funny about blends is that us as professionals, we really, we pick out what characteristics in the blend each grape gives to the wine. So with Pinot Meunier, I've always... Um, been like, hmm, somewhat curious about that wine. And I've had a lot of single variety, varietal Pinot Meunier champagnes. Right. So I know what that tastes like. So when you were saying, this is the recipe I'm going with, 
immediately when I was looking at my choices in terms of where I wanted to purchase the wine and where I wanted to get it from, I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's going to be a good pairing. It has the creaminess. It has enough weight to stand up to the dish. Mm-hmm. But not only is it's, it adding something, like you said earlier, it's completely making the dish some of the character, some of the notes that you want to yeah, highlight. Yeah, that green pepper, out. that blue cheese. It is like spiking the football right. and doing a touchdown dance. They're right. like, it's it's ugh, oh, it's beautiful. It's, it's, <laughs> it, <laughs> that's that's what happens with a good pairing. Like a good pairing is one of the things that can change you into a believer of something that you thought you hated but you really like. And casseroles and wine pairings, yo. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is this. I am so I worked at Ledoux's Wines for about four years with Jean Luc Ledoux, um, who recently passed away. But definitely, I understand that he was a mentor of myself, mine, and a bunch of people. And uh, I don't ever hesitate when I'm in this neighborhood or in the area of New York City, especially downtown. I go there, so I called them knowing that I wanted to, you know, get get a couple of things that I wouldn't be able to get in anywhere else, and I looked at my options, and I knew these two would be, these were the ones. These are the winners. So, mm-hmm. uh, listeners, and I will also, uh, these bottles with specific producers and years and, and details, and also I'll um, tag Ledoux's will be on Instagram, so if you're interested in Getting the bottles or understanding a little bit more about them, um, they'll be online. Yes. Um, and where, uh, if people are in New York City or visiting New York City, uh, how can they find out more about Get Comfy? Well, Get Comfy, I'm about to launch the website, hopefully within the next month or so. GetComfyWithWine.com. GetComfyWithWine.com. I do have Get Comfy With Wine on Instagram. But um, Key Lolo Strobert on Instagram, that's me. Follow me. Super fun. We do a lot of... Brooklyn sunrises. Brooklyn sunrises. Dancing in wine shops. Uh, just a lot of... Just a lot, you know, fun at work. Getting comfy with wine. Just making sure that there's no judgment. You know? You like what you like. Even if it's a casserole. Oh, stun. <laughs> I'm busted. I'm busted. Damn it. Okay. Thank you for yeah keeping me straight and honest for 10 years and 10 plus, 10 plus years. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. For bringing, so for bringing the juice to the cream today. I am the juice to the cream. Juice. I don't, I don't know how I feel go. about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's a wrap. That is indeed a wrap on the second episode of Cream of Caroline. Keep it creamy. <laughs> Roll those R's for me, baby. Okay, have a good night. <laughs>